This week, squeezing the world's least squeezable material, diamond. It's squished up fourfold in density to about the density of lead. And if you've ever picked up a lead brick, you know, that, that's a pretty high density. And the invention that helped 18th century seafarers find their way. I think there's an oversized pocket watch if you think um, the white rabbit in Alice, this is the, the kind of watch he might hold. Plus the protein causing a wasting disorder that affects half of all cancer patients. This is the Nature Podcast for July the 17th, 2014. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Fia Cunningham. Science is often about extremes. The oldest fossil, the smallest genome, the largest hadron collider. You get the idea. This week, we're going for extreme pressure. The pressure at the Earth's surface is one atmosphere, but higher pressures are everywhere. The Earth's core is at three and a half million atmospheres. The pressure inside giant planets in other solar systems can be in the tens or hundreds of millions. Scientists predict that matter might behave quite differently under these intense pressures. To test that prediction, one team has taken a piece of matter, in this case diamond, known for its hardness and uncompressibility, and they've used a giant laser to pile on 50 million atmospheres of pressure. Basically, they just squeezed it as hard as they possibly could. I asked author Rip Collins at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California for more. If you look back even, you know, 15 years ago in any chemistry textbook, most scientists would have told you, you squish something to these conditions and the physics and chemistry get very simple. You end up with a very simple, close-packed system. And just recently, there's really a, a new wave of thinking about how materials might behave at these conditions. Materials may not be simple and, in fact, may evolve to something that is much more complicated. So what happened to this piece of diamond that you've piled on 50 million atmospheres of, of pressure? It's squished up um, fourfold in density. So carbon is, is not particularly heavy uh, material, but we squished it up to about the density of lead. And if you've ever picked up a lead brick, you know, that, that's a pretty high density. The actual structure... We can't tell you yet, but we're setting up to perform those experiments explicitly. How do the lasers kind of create these very high pressures? Um, we used 176 laser beams, and we point those laser beams, all 176 of them, into uh, a gold can. And the gold can essentially serves the purpose of converting uh, that blue light into x-rays. We put the package that we want to study on the side and that uniform bath of x-rays uh, essentially heats up a very, very thin layer on our target and heats it up so hot that it explodes off. And what that does is it launches a compression wave into our sample. High pressures like this, they do exist. I mean, maybe not certainly not on the Earth's surface, not under the sea, but we're approaching them in the Earth's core and in the cores of even bigger planets, pressures like this, millions of atmospheres do actually exist. 
what does your result and the fact that you can make these pressures here and, and test them and play with them, what does that mean for what we understand about exoplanets? We are right at the very beginning of understanding what their structure is and the evolution of these types of planets. And what we are able to do with these experiments is put pretty rigorous constraints on the mass-radius relationship of relatively uniform composition planets. And so that's really a first step at understanding what the basic properties of these types of planets are throughout the universe. If the inside of a hypothetical giant exoplanet is made of carbon, and some people believe that that's what they might be made of, and carbon under pressure turns into something like diamond, are there just a lot of really bling planets floating around in the universe? (laughs) There could be. There could be. I mean, in some sense, it is thought that a fair number of these extrasolar planets are rich with carbon and Uh, it is quite likely that the preponderance of carbon in those planets is at, uh, you know, quite a high pressure phase. It could be that at these very, uh, for these very massive carbon planets, that carbon is uh, in quite a more exotic structure. Now, I want you to be honest when you're answering this next question. Have you ever been tempted or even allowed, to see what happened if you put anything else in this giant laser setup that you have? I mean, what what would happen to, you know, a pineapple or your iPhone? (laughs) I haven't thought of a pineapple. I guess what we're starting to do is essentially squish the simple stuff. So uh, we like squishing hydrogen. Carbon was a very good one because it's so important in technology and also for the fusion effort here. And we're just working our way down the periodic table and in important materials for Earth science. What's the dream? What would you squish if you could? We want to squish very complicated things. The major thrust of the effort here uh, currently is to squish hydrogen to generate fusion reactions. But there's a whole wide array of trying to understand what new types of materials we might be able to make and compress and then maybe even bring back to atmospheric conditions. That was Rip Collins at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California. For years, Bruce Spiegelman at Harvard Medical School has been looking into what makes people fat. But his latest study focuses on the opposite, what makes some people too thin. He's been studying a wasting disorder called cachexia. It's a condition that hits half of all cancer patients and people with chronic heart and kidney disease. Sufferers lose weight and muscle mass without trying. When we first started this project, we had that idea. Maybe we would find something responsible for cachexia, And then maybe we could turn it around and use it for obesity and diabetes. In the end, the biology proved too complicated to be used in deliberate weight loss. But just as important, the team found an explanation for cachexia and a possible treatment, which could help improve patient survival, because when cancer patients begin losing weight like this, it leaves them unfit for further therapies. 
Bruce's team discovered a protein leaked by lung tumours in mice, which activates a type of body fat known to burn energy, called brown fat. When they interfered with the protein, they could stop the mice from losing more weight. I called Bruce to find out more. In cachexia, individuals are in negative energy balance, meaning that more energy is being utilized than is being taken in the diet. And we come to this from an interest in adipose tissues, in this case specifically brown adipose tissues, which are specialized in energy expenditure. So what we show in the paper is that in mice, um, we gave them sort of a classic model of cancer where cachexia occurs using Lewis lung carcinoma cells. And the mice become cachectic. And then we asked, is there activation of brown fat? So what is it about this tumor that's causing this brown fat to become active? That's kind of the major thrust of the study. So we show that uh, there are several secreted molecules, but the one that's most intimately involved in this cachexia syndrome we discovered is a molecule called PTHRP, which is known as parathyroid hormone-related protein. Right, okay, so this, this hormone is activating the brown fat. Yes, and we show that in the paper, that when you neutralize PTHRP, you do decrease energy expenditure. And does it have any effect on the tumor itself? No, not apparently. The tumor grows normally. Do you think the hormone is acting alone, or are there other factors at play? There are definitely other factors at play, because when we give PTHRP to normal mice, we activate the brown fat, but we don't bring about a broad cachexia syndrome. When we neutralize PTHRP, we get an improvement in these proteins that have been associated with degrading muscle. But when we give PTHRP alone, we don't see that. And so we hypothesize in the model that PTHRP alone will not give an animal cachexia. Now, you've done this in mice. Do you know if tumors in humans are expressing the same hormone? About a third of severe cancer patients um, have elevated PTHRP in their blood. And within those patient groups, comparing patients who all have severe disease, but some who express PTHRP and some don't. The group that expressed PTHRP in the blood had higher resting energy expenditure and um, greater loss of lean body mass. So in humans, of course, we can't know about causality yet, but the correlations look very promising. How do you envisage a therapy might work? Well, most likely a humanized monoclonal antibody that neutralized PTHRP. That's certainly completely doable. And then the second part would be finding those patients who would benefit from the therapy. So people with advanced cancer who have elevated PTHRP in their blood. Now, I, I want to emphasize that even though this paper is done entirely with experimental cancer in mice and, uh, and humans with advanced cancers, Cachexia is common in, in heart disease and kidney disease as well. And we are speculating that perhaps elevated PTHRP is part of those syndromes as well. At this point, we have zero solid evidence that that's true. But, but it, on the other hand, it'd be pretty straightforward to, to examine that. That was Bruce Spiegelman at Harvard Medical School. Still to come, a new exhibition charts the quest to measure longitude on the high seas. 
But now it's time for the research highlights, read by Charlotte Stoddart. Has the end of the World Cup left a football-shaped hole in your life? Well, some good news. Scientists have built a new type of buckyball out of boron atoms. Buckyballs are molecular cages that resemble footballs, and ever since the first one was built out of carbon atoms three decades ago, scientists have tried to buckyball other elements. US-based researchers have now built one from 40 boron atoms. It resembles a well-used squished football, but it's proof that buckyballs can be built from other atoms, and it could be used to store hydrogen or lead to new boron-based nanomaterials. Find that paper in Nature Chemistry. Sober worms could help develop new drugs for alcohol addiction. The worm C. elegans is a good model of drunkenness. After drinking ethanol, they wiggle less, preferring to lie in a style you might be accustomed to seeing late on a Saturday night. They also lay fewer eggs. Researchers in Texas tweaked a channel in worm brains that's known to be an alcohol target in humans. The mutation made the worms drink-proof, but didn't affect any other functions. As well as for treating alcoholics, the team say the research could someday be used to make a James Bond drug which would let a spy drink his opponent under the table without getting drunk himself. Read more in the journal Neuroscience. Summer 1707. Sir Cloudsley Shovel, who'd worked his way up through the naval ranks, was in command of a fleet of 21 British ships. They'd just lost a battle with Franco-Spanish forces in the Mediterranean, returning home, tail between legs. Then an even bigger disaster struck Sir Cloudsley and his men. Beset by storms, like this one, they lost their way and their ships were dashed against rocks off the Scilly Isles, the furthest southwesterly outposts of Britain. The cause of the disaster might have been the sailors' inability to work out their longitude, their position on the earth along an east-west scale. Measuring longitude was a fiendish problem that engaged the sharpest of scientific minds and took centuries to solve. An exhibition at the National Maritime Museum in London takes a long look at longitude and I've come to take a look around with senior curator Richard Dunn. Richard, um, firstly, thank you for having me to this uh, seasick-inducing uh, scape here. And why did you decide to put on this exhibition about longitude now? This year is the 300th anniversary of the first Longitude Act, uh, which received royal assent in July 1714. Uh, but the story we're telling is actually uh, in the mid-18th century, the longitude was finally found, the great problem was solved. And why was it such a problem? I mean, many, many great minds, including Isaac Newton, right, applied themselves to this. People knew the theory of how to find longitude east-west position. They knew that one of the most likely methods to succeed was to be able to determine the time at two different points at the same time. So people knew in theory how to find longitude. The problem was as soon as you get on the ship, it becomes really difficult to determine the time at that distant location or difficult to carry the time from that distance lo location with a clock or a watch. Well, without further ado, perhaps we should uh, continue our tour of this quite dark and stormy exhibition. It's very lovely outside. The weather today is beautiful, but inside here, slightly more foreboding. Um, shall we go and have a look at the Longitude Act itself? Let's do that.
So here we are. We're, this is, we're in front of the Longitude Act, which is in that, that wonderful sort of gracile handwriting that we might expect from the 1700s. Yeah, this is the act from which the story in Britain begins, at least. The act um, set up a series of rewards for anyone who could solve, essentially, the practical problem of finding longitude at sea, away from land, away from any clues that will help you. The rewards that it offered were up to £20,000 if you could find the longitude to within half a degree after a six-week voyage to the West Indies. We're going to run through to the section where I think someone starts to crack this. Yep. Right, well, we've come to a stop here before some, some wonderful, glistening and moving items, I should say. Um, have a go at describing uh, what we've got in this, in this case here. What we have here are a series of sea clocks made at first to the eye in brass, but actually when you look inside them, you see that uh, lots of their parts are actually wooden. These are the sea clocks made by John Harrison uh, and are famously one of the solutions that came to fruition in the mid-18th century. So we start with his first sea clock, we now call it H1 for very obvious reasons, uh, made in the early 1730s and it's a wonderful Heath Robinson-like uh, creation with these kind of barbell uh, contraptions swinging in anti-face, they're swinging kind of against each other at the back of the clock. And this is the size of, you know, you, you could have to replace a whole barrel of ale on your ship to get this <laughs> thing on. Uh, you absolutely would. I mean, what, what Harrison is doing is uh, a number of things with these clocks. One, he, he realises that a pendulum won't work, so he has this bar balance uh, mechanism. He also has a larger me mechanisms for dealing with things like temperature compensation, this famous gridiron system of two different metals which, as they expand differently, uh, work against each other to keep the time of the clock the same. Uh, but he also uh, incorporates a number of anti-friction uh, devices, including the use of lignum vitae, uh, a hardwood with its own natural lubrication that mean that this clock and his other sea clocks need no oiling. That's crucial because oil in the 18th century was just terrible stuff. It dried up, it got dirty, it would cause clocks to stop. And that was the last thing you wanted for a sea clock. And how did he get better at making these? Because here we can see, is that, is that right, four iterations of this? Actually, his final solution is something quite different. It's a watch, it's not a clock, and it's much, much smaller. I mean, this is no bigger than, what, a Rubik's Cube? <laughs> well, that's right. It's, it's, I think of it as an oversized pocket watch. If you think um, the White Rabbit in Alice, this is the, the kind of watch he might hold. But there are some things he couldn't do. He couldn't um, incorporate all his anti-friction mechanisms into this watch uh, as he miniaturised. Uh, instead, he used things like uh, beautiful jewelled bearings that reduce friction as much as possible. As, as we take a, a turn through the rest of the exhibition then, I mean, did, did Harrison win the prize? Harrison was one of the people to be rewarded for his uh, innovations and for his longitude solutions. In 1763 to 4, um, Harrison's Sea Watch H4 was tested alongside uh, lunar tables developed by a German astronomer, Tobias Meyer, uh, and also tested alongside a third method, a, a marine chair, uh, for observing Jupiter's satellites. What was the idea? You just sit in the chair and look at the sky? Basically, but you, you needed to be very steady to observe Jupiter and its satellites because the field of view is so small. And that was it. It was a, it was a chair for holding a telescope very steady, and it, it couldn't. 
Have modern sailors appropriated these techniques or do we now find our way in a totally different fashion? Modern sailors still have these kinds of techniques available. With the coming of GPS, they aren't the main way of navigating anymore. But GPS might fail. So the British Navy and others are thinking about uh, actually making sure they've got far more officers trained in traditional uh, astronomical navigation systems than they might have done only a few years ago. That was curator Richard Dunn at the National Maritime Museum in London. Find out more about the exhibition and check out some pictures of Harrison's clocks on the Royal Museum's Greenwich website at rmg.co.uk or follow the museum on Twitter at nmmgreenwich. Hey, and follow us on Twitter too for show updates, anecdotes, relevant links and non-relevant links. We are at Nature Podcast. Time for the news now and news editor Davide Kaslavecki joins me in the studio. What's your first story this week? The first story is about yet another embarrassment in biosafety. It was announced that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, um, have accidentally shipped a highly infectious uh, vial of the, the flu virus H5N1 Uh, from Atlanta to uh, another laboratory in Athens, Georgia. And this has caused a lot of soul-searching in in this uh, agency, which is charged with guaranteeing biosafety across the United States. How do you accidentally ship a virus like that? It is unclear. The agency is is, uh, basically reviewing the case and, and its own procedures. It seems that there was a uh, sample of harmless strain of flu that got somehow contaminated with the highly dangerous H5N1 strain. And how how have the CDC responded to this incident? What have they had to say on their behalf? It has caused quite some embarrassment. The agency director has said that I'm disappointed by what happened and frankly I'm angry. And the the response was to shut down the their flu lab. Of course, it is to be hoped that it will be ready to reopen when flu season starts because this, these are the labs that track the spread of flu uh, you know, d- during a, a flu epidemic. This comes just days after another incident with smallpox. Yes, so this was not the CDC. This was something that was found on the 1st of July at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland in a refrigerator someone found a vial that was marked smallpox. Now, smallpox is, of course, uh, an incredibly dangerous virus. It was um, considered eradicated since at least 1980. And there's only two labs in the world that are supposed to be authorized to keep smallpox samples for research purposes. One is in the US and one is in Russia. But Of course, finding uh, rogue vials of smallpox randomly kept in refrigerators in other labs that weren't supposed to have them raises a lot of questions. Mm. How how did the NIH think it might have got there? It seems that nobody knows. The refrigerator is uh, one that belongs actually not to the NIH, but to the Food and Drug Administration, and it's kept on the NIH campus. So in light of all these incidents then, are labs going to be forced to sort of review how they go about their safety measures? Some experts interviewed by Nature have said this uh, could be the silver lining of these these, uh, embarrassing episodes, that maybe now there will be a, a heightened 
level of attention and and safety procedures will be overhauled and, and reviewed. However, it is impossible, of course, to know what is in all refrigerators in all laboratories around the world. And, and uh, there's a sense that there may still be vials of a number of infectious agents that people forgot because maybe someone 50 years ago was sloppy about not marking a vial properly. So it seems that incidents such as this one may be bound to repeat. Okay, I'm moving on to your second story about the controversy over the benefits of organic food. Yes, this is an ongoing saga, of course. Advocates of organic food say that it is good for the environment and they also say that it is good for you to eat it. And there have been a number of studies, in fact, hundreds of studies, looking into the nutritional value of organic food, as well as comparing the amounts of uh, pesticides that are contained in conventional foods compared to organic foods. Uh, now, it is very controversial whether pesticides are bad for you, the, the amounts found in, in, for example, apples. But it also is controversial whether organic foods are actually richer in nutritional content. So this study, the new study that we covered, was from Newcastle University in the UK. And it was a meta-analysis of 343 different studies. And it found that organic food does seem to have higher content in things such as uh, antioxidants. So, I mean, is, that, is this the end of the debate? I'm afraid not. There have been a number of meta-analyses like this one over the years. Uh, for example, just recently in 2012, uh, there has been a similar large study of, of more than 200 um, different papers that found no advantage in eating organic food in terms of nutritional content. And, and in fact, some of the critics of this paper, of this new paper, have said they have looked at too many different analyses uh, without discriminating which ones were necessarily more rigorous or, or less rigorous. So it could be a matter of how the, the individual studies were done. Okay, so I won't be rushing to the supermarket to buy an organic lunch just yet. Davide, thank you. Remember, you can read both of those stories and more at nature.com slash news. That's it for this week. Next time, imitating the sun to generate energy from nuclear fusion. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. 